What is up, you guys? Welcome back to another episode of Illuminati, the podcast where we drink beer and talk about conspiracy theories. My name is John. Yeah, and this is Jake. And today on Illuminati, I am going to tell you another story. NASA astronaut Kate Rubens and the cosmonauts Sergei Rizakov and Sergei Kutsverchkov were alerted to danger by alarm bells on September 22nd, 2020. The crew of the International Space Station were being warned about an unknown piece of space junk hurtling towards them at 18,000 miles per hour, seven times faster than a bullet. Typically, the ISS can absorb small pieces of debris up to a centimeter or so, but anything else could destroy the station when it tears through the shielding. This chunk was about the size of a traffic cone, and no one knows where it came from, but they'd have to take action. According to NASA, the crew used thrusters attached to the station to move to a higher orbit. During the maneuver, the astronauts on board the station fled to the Russian segment so that they would be closer to the Soyuz passenger spacecraft, which shuttles astronauts to and from Earth. Once the 150-second-long maneuver was over, the crew went back to their normal activities, having sufficiently shat their pants. <laughs> Avoiding space junk is a fairly new phenomenon. Up until 2015, it was relatively unheard of to need a sudden maneuver to escape outer space onslaughts. But in 2020 alone, the ISS has had to reposition six times to avoid destruction. And that's only when they're tracking the piece of junk. It only takes a piece of junk the size of a thumb to cause serious damage and kill everyone aboard if it's unexpected. Today on Illuminati, we are starting a three-part series on just how screwed we are as a species. Our infrastructure is failing, and there's really not that much we can do about it. In part one, we're going to talk about how outer space can kill you, or at least ruin our way of life. From space debris the size of an orange to a finicky sun that throws temper tantrums, all of it can send us back to the Stone Age. But before we get to that, what you drinking? Hey. <laughs> Talk about some beers. <laughs> I uh, happen to be enjoying a heist brewery big picking. Uh, it's a it's a Berliner Weiss style ale. Uh, with lots of strawberry and blood orange and this tastes like a drink you would be handed while sitting on a porch at a plantation. Okay. You know, I, I want it. I want to pour this over crushed ice. Yeah. And put a little umbrella in it. Very good. Yeah, it's delicious. It's really good. All right. Um, I'm usually not like a Berliner vice guy, but yeah, maybe it's blood or I love blood orange stuff. Anything blood orange. I'm yeah. into and this does it. Uh, this is from again. This is from a heist down in Charlotte uh, comes in at about 6.1, you know, regular aluminum can with a stick on label with a big old with the words big picking with a big old picture of blood orange and a strawberry on there. You know, yeah, pretty standard pretty much what you would think. Yeah, uh, and it's great. I dig it. Um, I would definitely do some more heist brewery stuff based on this. I've had a couple of their things before. Uh, they had a really heavy stout I had over the over the winter. Yeah, that was delicious. 
Um, and it was like a dark chocolate raspberry something or other. It was amazing. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, but it's also 90 degrees outside right now. And, and that's true. The idea of drinking something like that made me want to black out. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, right. But yeah, this is great. I'm really enjoying this. And I'm usually not this kind of beer type of guy. Oh, nice. Yeah. So uh, I'm interested. I want one now. I'll pick you up one. I'll okay. Get you one of yeah. All right. So, uh, did you get you- me any pickle beer? I didn't bring you another pickle beer. Oh, I didn't no. have any. It really? Was all I looked. All out. It was all gone. That's bonkers. Yeah. So it must have been kind of popular. Yeah. Um, Dang, we might have one. to actually go to Deep River. Oh, no. Oh, no. Have to go to the brewery. <laughs> that sounds horrible. What, uh, what are you drinking over there? So I have the third sister of a beer, I guess, series, basically, that I've done. So I have the Months third. Months in the making. I know, right? I have the third of Wicked Weeds Burst Session Sours. Okay, first let's go over what the first two were because I'm blanking. There was a cranberry something. The The first one was a key lime cherry right. one. Yeah. The second one was a passion fruit, star fruit one. Drag, maybe it was dragon, dragon, dragon fruit? No, because this one's the dragon. Oh, so it was probably star fruit. It was something. Yeah, we had, it was like, of us had it was had. like passion fruit, star fruit. Yeah, or something like that. Right. And this one is the watermelon dragon fruit burst. Okay. Session sour sounds very refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a pea green can with little cartoon dragon fruits and watermelons and stuff all over it. Has a big wicked weed logo. Says you know dragon fruit. Watermelon dragon fruit burst sour on it. It's a four point five percent ABV and ale with watermelon flavor, dragon fruit powder, and natural flavors. Brewed at Wicked Weed Nashville. Nice. Not really that much to this can. It's really fun looking. You know, it's got some definitely like summertime hot girl, white girl wasted yeah. kind of thing going yeah. on. A little twelve ounce can or whatever. It's super good. It's yeah where. The key lime cherry one was super good. It was like, you know, your hot girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the second one. That was one, the first one. The, the second one, one. The second one was the ugly cousin. Right. It was this kind of one is the hot cousin. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Good. That's awesome. You get a ton <laughs> of watermelon in the front. I mean, a ton. Yeah. And then somewhere in the back, it's like kind of sweet and you get that like dragon fruity kind of like sweetness okay. aftertaste. I would say it's maybe a tad boozy. A little, okay. Like just surprising for four and a half percent. Yeah. It's just something I guess about the way the flavor is because this basically looks like fruit punch. Yeah. It's like a darker red. Yeah. Cranberry juice. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. With a little bubbly. bit of like foamy white head. Yeah. Yeah. Watermelon's a hard flavor to, to work with. Yeah, I feel like a lot of watermelons come off kind of like fake watermelon, like watermelon yeah, jolly 100%. rancher. Right. This isn't like that. Oh, good. Yeah. It's a, it has a very like, have you had Hell or High Watermelon by 21st yeah. Amendment? Yeah. That beer is really good and yeah. it does not have a fake watermelon-y flavor. Right. The first sip I took, I was like, oh, this is like Hell or High Watermelon, but with dragon fruit and without the heaviness. Nice. Of the wheat. I had a weird spicy watermelon sour once that was... Very, man, I wish I remember who made it, but yeah, it was like a it was like a jalapeno watermelon sour. Yeah, and it was good. It was really good. It was a little too spicy for me. Yeah, I mean anything's too spicy for me, but it was like it was decent. You probably would have dug it. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah but, I have a hard time with spicy drinks. Yeah. Like I'm good with yeah. spicy food and spicy snacks, but spicy drinks, I'm like, yeah. Well, the drink know. is where you go to, a, to to recover from the spicy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like if I eat a wing that's too hot, I'm going to drink an entire yingling. Yeah. Like yeah. that's where I want to cool down. I don't and if the yingling hot. has jalapeno in it, right. You're screwed. Yeah. Yeah. I see yeah. That. No, this is so good. It's like, it's sweet, but it's not overly sweet. The front half is watermelon. The back half is dragon fruit. And that's where all the sweetness hits you is in the back. It's not gooey sweet. No. Good. Not that's at cool. all. It goes down super easy. Like this is on my summer beer list. Nice. Absolutely. So this uh, mind haze. The the cherry limeade. The cherry lime, limeade. Lime, the key lime cherry one of these. This one. Normal what was mind the other haze. There was another one you had on your summer list. Juiciness. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> obviously juiciness. <laughs> no. It was, um, reason. it was like two weeks ago. We, we the had, double mine haze maybe. Yeah. Because I know I did that one. And I feel like there was really another good. one. I feel like there was some like other kind of regular IPA we fell into along that path. I don't know. We'll have to I, We'll listen. We'll yeah, I'll have here. to listen back. We should publish before before all this happens. We should publish our official beers of summer list. On oh, social yeah. media. Yeah. Okay. That'd be fun. Yeah. That'd be cool. All right. Well, cool. Who's okay. ready to hear about some space killing you infrastructure shit? I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. So I kind of um, got some inspiration about this whole thing because uh, the colonial pipeline is just kind of wrapping up. You know, the uh, the the gas is kind of back to normal here. I don't know, it's been a couple of days since there's been craziness. Is it? I think so. I know I my plan even after the pipeline was back up was to wait a little while. Yeah. Because Sheets never ran out of gas. That's how I was able to get gas. But that's because Sheets has their own distribution network. Oh. They don't run off the, the colonial pipeline. Makes sense. Everywhere else does. Sheets is just so good at everything. They got that, know, they, they got their food. The they everything's good, you know. They're the best gas station. Yeah, yeah. And but all the other gas stations, when they are out. I mean, out, out. Yeah. The tanks are empty, empty. Yeah. There's really disgusting gas sediment at the yes. bottom of yeah, the underground yeah, yeah, yeah. tanks and it gets all full of water. Yep. Because of, you know, with the tanks being empty, they get all cold and then yep. they put the gas back in and it sucks a bunch of water out because of the yeah. condens- it condensates and then there's sediment in the bottom. So it's like the first couple times they turn the tanks back over again. Yeah. It's just all full of water and sediment and bullshit. Yeah. I think I got a tank full of that in the Miata. Yeah. Cause it's running kind of rough right now. Yeah. Like four, like four days ago I, I topped it off and just today I was driving somewhere and I, I parked on a, a little bit of a hill, just a little bit of a hill. I mean like 4% grade or something kind of tiny. And when I went to turn the car over, it was like, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, we're good. And then it like sputtered for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And then as I put in gear to go like further up the hill, it kind of like was a little shaky and giving me a little trouble on the way. But yeah, it, my only thought is it's either a 22 year old piece of shit or it, there must have been bad gas. It had to be that. Yeah. It can't just be the car. So yeah, <laughs> definitely not. I mean, at this point, what was going to break would be broken. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. So yeah, so it seems like I saw gas everywhere else. It seems like it's all coming back together. Nice. Um, but yeah, so I saw the colonial pipeline thing uh, happening, the unfolding the hack, and I just kind of realized this is something that needs to be addressed, you know, and typically, you know, we talk about conspiracy theories and different sides of it and like who's involved, what's going on, where the money's going. And, and you know, we joke about that a lot. 
None of this is conspiracy. Everything in here is every single thing I have in here is from like public documents, congressional documents. You know, all of this stuff is very kind of aware and known. You know, declassified stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like that it, still kind of falls into. The it was key. never really classified, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but it's it does fall. It it's more of like controversial knowledge, I guess, because a lot of this stuff people just don't talk about. Yeah. You know, so. Um, so this series, we're going to talk about these real issues, uh, real problems that we're facing right now. And uh, there's one thing I'm kind of going to leave out of it a little bit, which is climate change, because okay. I, I feel like that's a little obvious. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about some weather a little bit, but we're not going to get into that too much. And and we're not going to get into a lot of the apocalyptic scenarios that could happen, because if you do want to know about that stuff, go to episode seven, where we really dug into all the different ways the world can end. Yeah, and we talked about exactly these things. 101 ways you could die in the apocalypse. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we covered every single one of them. So yeah, so in part one, like John just said, we're talking about our satellites and space debris and how it could literally cripple our way of life. And um, in part two, we're going to dig into the supply chain and how fragile it is. And then in part three, we're going to look at our aging crippled electrical grid. So Today, there are more than 4,000 working satellites orbiting this pale blue dot we called Earth. They're all beaming around information, taking photos of us, making calculations, and most importantly, operating our global GPS system. In addition to those 4,000 functioning satellites, there's an estimated 3,500 dead ones flying around up there too, just waiting to smash into something else. Obviously, Space is a pretty big space. You know, it's called space. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this big open area and a, a satellite is little. You know, it's like the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah. Like, I feel like we need to start giving like rocket ships to scrappers. Yeah. I mean, that would be one solution for sure. <laughs> yeah. I've read, I've read, there's a couple of books I've read that are take place slightly in the future and that that is a job like space cleaner where dudes go up and just get that stuff. You sure, know, that sounds light. I'll do it. Yeah, I mean, it'd probably be interesting for sure. Um, Sign me up, Elon. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> he's kind of causing some of the problems over there too. So, but anyway, so we've got these thirty-five hundred dead ones flying around, and they're just decommissioned, but they're in high enough orbit where they're not going to crash into the Earth. So they just stay up there, circling the Earth over and over and over again, and they're going like eighteen thousand miles an hour. Um, so. Aside from the 4,000 functioning satellites and the 3,500 dead ones, there's something like 20,000 chunks of space junk larger than a softball flying around the planet at 17,500 miles per hour. And any of these that are larger than a softball could easily destroy the space station or any satellite that they smack into. And if you drop it down to the size of a marble, there's 500,000 pieces the size of a marble up there. And then if you go even lower than a marble, you're looking at around 2 million hyperspeeding bits in play above our heads. Dang. So that's a lot. And I yeah. mean, any of these things. So like um, there's been a, but they've done it in movies like the movie gravity and there's all these other movies where they've done that where essentially and I'll talk about this in a second. There's been movies where a paint fleck off of the space station or something hits an astronaut and kills them. And that's a reality. That's something that actually happens. Oh shit. Yeah, because it's going, you know, almost 20,000 miles an hour. So in 2010, there was an analysis of several space shuttle windows that had to be replaced due to collision with space junk. And NASA found that the damage was caused by paint flecks that had come loose and were turned into one of those millions of pieces of space debris that they can't 
keep track of because they're so small. So Nicholas Johnson, who's the chief scientist for space debris at NASA, said the greatest risk to space missions comes from non-trackable debris, so the smaller stuff. There's two interesting things about that quote. First, of course, they can't track at all. No one can track space shuttle window destroying paint flex. And second, it's a serious enough issue that they have a chief scientist in charge of this debris, meaning they also have non-chief scientists working on it too. So like a whole team, right? And it's like, that's what these dudes are here for. Imagine you go to the bar <laughs> and you walk up to a girl and you're like, hey, my name is Billy Bob. And she's like, oh, Billy Bob, what do you do? She says, well, I work at NASA. Oh, Ooh, what do you do at NASA? <laughs> uh, I track space debris. I'm the vice assistant manager. To, I'm, I'm You're the assistant, assistant to, to the, the regional. <laughs> you the assistant to the regional space uh, space trash manager. You're yeah. a space trash man. Yeah. You're a space trash tracker. Kind of a big deal. And then Keep she turns her and then she throws a beer in his face, turns around and walks yeah. away. She's like, I'm going to bang this volleyball player because <laughs> it, it's the 80s. No, yeah. <laughs> I, I still bet that the the space debris trash tracker scientists yeah. have a way more interesting life than me. It's probably good for stories. Yeah, probably. They're, yeah. I mean, because there's a lot of weird stuff up there. Yeah. <laughs> this one time we found a Martian volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> it was going bleep, 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 just flying around. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but so with with so much debris up there, there have been surprisingly few disastrous collisions. In 1996, a chunk of decade old rocket smashed into a French satellite and turned it into space rubble which that just adds to the problem when these things get hit uh, because they break apart and that adds more space debris. Then on February 10th, 2009, a defunct Russian satellite collided with and destroyed a functioning US Iridium commercial satellite. The um, the Iridium commercial satellites are they provide L band voice and data information coverage to things like satellite phones, pagers, integrated transceivers, all of that stuff over the whole surface of the earth. And there's more than a hundred of these things. But that collision that hit this US Iridium commercial satellite added more than 2000 pieces of trackable de- debris. So bigger stuff, bigger stuff like like thumb and up basically thumb size and up. Interesting. And thousands more pieces of untrackable de- debris. Obviously, they don't know how many because it's a bunch. But you know, untrackable de- debris is under the size of like a marble, so you know, probably a lot. And uh, two years before that uh, collision, China launched an anti-satellite test, which used a pretty standard missile to blow up an old weather satellite of theirs. And that little experiment of theirs put more than three thousand more trackable chunks circling around the planet. And again you know, tens of thousands of untrackable chunks that could kill a satellite walk or uh, kill an astronaut walking around. And, you know, if you're not seeing a pattern here yet, you should because every time something gets obliterated, it adds to the problem significantly thousands and thousands of times to this problem. If a piece of debris is trackable, it can destroy another satellite or the space station and each satellite that gets hit becomes thousands and thousands of more pieces of debris. So that's where in 1978, this guy named Donald Kessler got involved. So he, uh, you know, he was looking at this problem and in 1978, it wasn't a problem. They, were, they just had a bunch of satellites up there. He was just looking down the road. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, this could become a problem. Future, future gazing. As Smart guys over here being like, uh, 
<laughs> y'all know all this debris is going to be like bad for traffic. <laughs> right, right. He's like, he's sitting in traffic and he sees like a, like a, like a hubcap come off a car and go into the middle of the road and then somebody else hits it and they collide and he's like, but what about space? And he just yeah. looks straight up. Yeah, it reminds me of that scene from a twister where they're driving around and somebody's like, yeah. there's debris. And then what's his name? <laughs> his character's like debris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was that Jack Black? No, or Bill Paxton, Bill Paxton, Bill Paxton. Yeah, yeah. he was the one who was like debris. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. was also where like we've got a cow. <laughs> we got another cow yeah. and then the he's like, I think that's the same one. <laughs> <laughs> that movie was amazing. That was it was, it was amazing. Helen Hunt's a, a national treasure. Oh man. She was so cute in that movie. It was great. It was perfect. Oh yeah. So we've got Donald Kessler staring at the cows flying around and he's just like, this is going to be a huge problem. And so what he did is he sat down and he like did the nerd guy thing where he like made a bunch of models. He's drawn pictures. He did a montage. Yeah. Yeah. Like a musical fucking montage. Yeah. He's doing like a musical montage. Yeah. And you know, he's hanging little like styrofoam planets and he's like throwing needles at him and stuff. And then yeah. And then at the end of it, he just sits down. He's like, oh shit. Because he realizes (laughs) that basically his theory is that when one satellite collides with another, it creates a bunch more debris, which is what we saw before. Then that debris hits another and another and another and another until instead of satellites, we just have this swirling mass of deadly projectiles keeping us from being able to launch things into space because anything we throw up there will get destroyed. So it's just like this maelstrom of junk up there going at 20,000 miles an hour. So we've created our own prison exactly of 20,000 mile an hour moving pieces of yeah, trash. Yeah, 100%. And there's a bunch of movies and TV shows that have dealt with this um, and they've talked about it. And uh, at first, all the other scientists were like, no way, dude. But then NASA started analyzing these pock marks on the side of spacecraft and recovered satellites, like these little dings in the side of these things. Yeah. And they started looking at them really closely and they started th- at first they thought they were done by micrometeoroids, like like just specks of sand flying around. Yeah, and so they start pulling this stuff out and they're like, oh, Kessler's right. Oh shit. I found a bolt. Yeah, I mean not even a bolt chunks of paint little tiny specks of paint. Yeah, or like a metal shaving that came off a screw, you know stuff that size. That's what we're talking about here. That's dust. dented the size of these things tiny. Yeah, but like man-made does. Yeah, you know and uh, it, they only started looking into this because of Kessler like he pointed out like this is probably a thing. And they found that all of this damage from these from these spaceships and these different things were all from man-made debris. And now NASA was thoroughly freaked out and they had, you know, the attention of Kessler. They were like, tell us what you want to know. Yeah. You know, and in 1979, they established the NASA Orbital Debris Program, which started keeping track of all this junk and regulating what you can launch into space. They're like, you can't just poop out of the side of the spaceship anymore. Right. That's going to kill somebody. And so the establishment of this thing is how back at the beginning when they had to move the International Space Station, this organization is the ones who track that and see where that stuff is going. And they basically have a computer program that manages where all these little chunks of things are and they know when it's going to impact other things. So it's this crazy math equation, probably AI somehow, you know, Um, but the problem was 
while we were doing this and we're being cool and we're like trying to be responsible about what we throw up in into space. Yeah. The rest of the world's like, you guys are idiots. It's space. It's a big trash bucket. Nobody cares. And they're just like jettisoning bolts out the windows and like, you know, throw like, nah, don't worry about it. And they just, they're like up there playing demolition derby with their like space, <laughs> space shuttles, <laughs> shooting rockets at each yeah, other. Yeah, Like they're playing asteroid. They're just like kill everything. Who cares? And there's like, there's just like junk everywhere. Yeah. So as current satellites die out, uh, they're replaced with new ones, causing there to be more and more orbiting time bombs waiting to chain react their way into wiping out all the other satellites because that's the kind of basis of, of Kessler's principle is that once one gets hit, it'll take out one will take out two, two will take out four, four will take out six or eight, you know, and it'll go 16, 32, 64 exactly, until they're all on and on and crashed. On. Yeah. And one huge problem with this is people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, you know, so both of these bozos are up there launching an estimated 1500 satellites into orbit in the next two years and triple that. If those ones are successful, they're trying to create their own constellation up there with um, uh, to use their own satellite uh, tracking systems for different purposes. And think about how often Amazon kind of just discontinues a product after launching it. They're like, hey, here's fresh, and then they kill fresh. Yeah. They're doing that, except they're just throwing satellites into space. You know, as soon as it doesn't work, they're going to be like, oh, let's launch satellite version two and like not care about that other satellite because there's no real hardcore regulation over this stuff. Yeah. I guess my main question is like, why don't they just crash the satellites into the Atlantic and go salvage them or something? Well, sometimes they can do that, but when things break apart, you don't know where those pieces are going. You know, I mean, get, I figured it's like, I mean, like, yeah. like with the Chinese, they right. were like, oh, here's a decommissioned satellite. Let's shoot a rocket at it. Yeah. Why didn't you just bring it down, let it burn up in the atmosphere or drop it in the ocean and go yeah. get it? Well, it depends on which orbitable, orbitable. It depends on which level it's at in low Earth orbit, mid Earth orbit, or high Earth orbit. Depending on where it's at, if it's high enough, it will have no retrograde, so it'll never fall to Earth. It'll just keep going on its own momentum. And if it doesn't right. have thrusters, it can't push itself down into the lower orbit. So it'll just stay there forever, perpetually. You know, so like the recently there was, um, you remember it was like two weeks ago, there was like a satellite, a Chinese satellite that was going to crash into the Earth and nobody knew where it was going to go. Vaguely, yeah. Yeah, it was just like a thing that happened to the headlines and nobody really paid attention. It ended up landing next to the Maldives or something. Okay. And the reason they were able to lower that is because it was a fairly newer satellite that was still able to operate under thrust. So they could shoot thrusters, drop it into lower and lower orbit, and then it would start falling to earth as it, as it fell. Well, I guess my other question is, and this would be an extremely human thing to do. And by extremely human, I mean, extremely douchey thing to do. Yeah. We could just make the thrusters go the other way and just let them fly off into space somewhere. Then go hit Mars or the sun or yeah. Go explode around a different aliens planet and yeah, give them, you yeah. know what I mean. Um, but the problem with that is the the thrusters. You would need such powerful thrusters, and most of these satellites are only designed with thrusters to like move it a quarter of a degree and keep it in orbit essentially. So you would need like boosters to get Nemo it. power, baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you would need like boosters to get it out of the you know orbit. Because yeah. you have to break Earth's gravitational orbit, and that takes a lot of power. You know, I guess. Yeah, it's that's why it's a problem. Just spitball in here. <laughs> I'm not a scientist. I mean, I'm just saying. 
I mean, I'm just saying I got some ideas. Yeah, just try, I, I just want to be the heard. Idea. I, I'm the idea man. I'm not the doer yeah. man. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so in Europe, Russia and China and everywhere else, they're estimated to be launching a few thousand satellites per year into space for the next like 15 years, which will that's probably going to be fine. You know, just keep throwing them up there or whatever. Um, but let's get this like debris field thing out of the way first. We have a wide array of millions of pieces of marble size and up chunks flying at 10 to 20,000 mile per hour. Anything launched into it would be instantly destroyed. So once the Kessler syndrome is in full effect, it's really hard to recover from. So they estimate somewhere between like a hundred, like 50 to 150 years for all these things to downgrade. So it would essentially lock us to this planet for 150 years. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, let's look at what happened if all of our satellites got destroyed at once. So if this Kessler syndrome does happen and it cascades, kills all the satellites, what's going on here at Earth? So within a few hours, we would start noticing a massive drop off in our ability to communicate, share information and operate online. With telecommunication satellites wiped out, the burden of these systems would all be passed along to those huge undersea cables and ground-based systems. But while many forms of communication would vanish instantly, a few others would keep going. International calls and data would get sent to those terrestrial lines, and this would oversaturate them greatly, and eventually they would crack under these pressure. Uh, most of these calls would just get dropped. Hundreds of millions of internet connections would stop working altogether. Uh, same with cell phones. In some remote areas, people depend entirely on satellite for t for television, internet, radio. All those people will be out of service. So you just have nothing. Uh, back in 1998, we got a little taste of this problem when this one comm satellite failed and was suddenly shut off. It just like they don't know what happened to it. It just turned off because some wire and it got fried. And the problem with that is that was the satellite that ran every pager on the planet. Holy shit. Yeah. So no pagers, period. And it only took them a day to get another satellite into that area to take over duty. But for one day on this entire planet, there were no pagers in 1998. Wow. That's bonkers. Yeah. What so, were the doctors doing? Right. I mean, no. those, yeah, those are the only people with pagers. Now, <laughs> yeah. um, right. uh, so we'd also lose the GPS system. So in the years since its inception, GPS has just become this thing that we all rely on and it, you know, it works its way into every single system because it's considered this ultra reliable, ultra, you know, accurate thing. Airplanes have also become so reliant that pilots are almost not needed at this point. And luckily they have all these backups, but without GPS and telecom satellites, aircraft controllers would have tremendous difficulty communicating with and routing airplanes. Airlines would have to fall back to legacy systems and procedures. With the sheer volume of airline traffic today, it wouldn't be long before planes just literally started crashing. You know, there would be problems with how close they are to the ground. You know, they would revert to a lot of kind of old school systems, but some of the newest planes and the people that fly them aren't fully educated on those things. Yeah. So it's they've never had to do it. Right. Problem. You know, um, other affected navigation systems would include those aboard cargo vessels, supply chain management systems, transportation hubs, all driven by GPS. But GPS does more than just provide positioning. It also provides a thing called timing ground based atomic clocks can perform these same functions. But since GPS is increasingly being used to distribute universal time standards by satellites, it's just become what we use now, right? 
Within hours of terminated service, any distributing network requiring tight synchronization would start to suffer from a quote unquote clock drift, leading to serious performance issues and outright service outages. Such disruptions could affect everything from power grid to the financial sector. And if you think it's hard to get work done when your internet connection goes out of the office, imagine losing that plus cell phone, TV, radio, ATM, credit cards, and possibly parts of your electrical system because they run off of the timing. So if they're not currently up to time, there could be a problem where it pings, it tries to get the right time, there's an error, and everything just shuts down. Uh, wireless services would fail to hand off calls from one cell to the next, leading to drop connections. Computer networks would experience slowdowns as data is pushed through finite pipelines at reduced bit rates. The same would be true for major networks for communication and entertainment. Since they're all IP-based today, they require ultra-precise timing to ensure that their digital traffic reaches its destination properly. The lack of effective syncing would hit especially hard in banking, where the timing of transactions needs to be recorded very accurately. Credit card payments and bank accounts would likely be frozen as billions of dollars could be sucked away from any business and not returned properly. A financial crash would probably happen within a day or two of satellites being taken out. Um, and then one of the big, big issues is you look at the military. There was a recent io9 article that talked about all this and it said the sudden loss of satellite capability would have a profound effect on the military. The Marshall Institute put it this way. Space is a critical enabler to all U.S. warfare domains, including intelligence, navigation, communication, weather prediction, and warfare. McDowell describes satellite capability as, quote, the backbone of the U.S. military. And as 21st century warfare expert Peter W. Singer from the New America Foundation said, he who controls the heavens will control what happens in the battles of Earth. Singer summarized the military consequences of losing satellites in an email to, uh, to the publisher that said, today there are some 1,100 active satellites which act as the nervous system of not just our economy, but also our military. Everything from communication to GPS to intelligence all depend on it. Potential foes have noticed, which is why Russia and China have recently begun testing a new generation of anti-satellite weapon, which in turn has sparked the U.S. military to recently budget $5 billion for recent space warfare systems. So what would happen if we lost this access to space? And uh, the battles, as one U.S. military officer put it, would take us back to a pre-digital age. Drones, missiles, even our ground units would not be able to operate the way we plan. It would force a rewrite of all of our assumptions of 21st century high-tech warfare. We might have a new generation of stealth battleships, but the loss of space would mean naval battles would in many ways be like the game of battleship where the two sides struggle to even find each other in the water. And one of the most noticeable changes would be our complete inability to predict the weather anymore. Satellites have not only let us know where there are storms coming, but also to know when to monitor gigantic storms that can destroy life and property. We wouldn't be able to see hurricanes, blizzards, nothing like that. We'd be back to 19th century when it comes to dealing with Mother Nature. And you can read stories from 100 years ago where people in the South talk about hurricanes suddenly arriving basically during dinner parties while sitting in the Florida Keys. And I don't know if you've been a hurricane, but it's a terrifying situation. Uh, I'm from the Southeast. Yeah. Many. Yeah. yeah. So many. Yeah. I grew All up, of them. Yeah. I grew up in Fort Lauderdale. So it's just been possible, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the idea of not having preparation for it, and you're just like outside mowing the lawn, and then all of a sudden, like hurricane, that would be insane. Yeah. Um, so 
prepping doesn't seem so crazy now. Right, it? right. <laughs> <laughs> I got my windbreaker. Now yeah. how now who fool feels fool's foolish? <laughs> I got my windbreaker tracksuit. Yeah. So now that we know how bad the situation is, which is essentially horrible, um, let's talk about how long it could possibly last, which we touched on a little bit. Theories vary pretty widely about how long the field of debris would stay up there. Some say because of the way the orbital uh, debris happens at retrograde, it could be as short as 10 years, but more conservative estimates are closer to the 100-year mark. Uh, to the 150 year mark before everything managed to crash back to earth and we would even be able to get another satellite up. The military has a few backup plans for repopulating very low earth orbit with emergency satellites. They've developed these things. uh, I think they called them like cube strings or something and it's essentially cubes on string and they just like fire them into the air and they get up into low earth orbit and reestablish satellite connections. But you know, that's just for the military. You know, they're going to use that to watch if there's troops moving around or whatever. They're not going to use that for us to like get our GPS back. Like they don't care about us. They're just going to be right. taking care of themselves, you know? Yeah. But either way, we're going to be in pretty bad trouble for a while if this goes down. Um, as a society in general, we've gotten very used to satellites showing us the way and handling all of our data. And the transition to a world without satellites would just be catastrophic, you know, for at least dozens of years. Yeah. So that's uh that's what I've got right now for part one. Uh we're gonna get a lot more into some scary stuff. This was the least scary of some of these things. Least scary. This is the least scary of these things. Oh my God. Yeah. So uh any questions, concerns? <laughs> uh I guess like when I still think about what satellites do, yeah, I still think about like the old direct TV yeah. and stuff like that where it's like every time you turn on the TV, it doesn't work. Right, right. It has a reposition. Like, there's and, no satellite in yeah, range. Yeah. Like there's never a satellite in yeah. range. As soon as it starts to like just barely drizzle, you yeah. lose connection and stuff. Yeah. That's still what I think about satellites, but apparently... They're a little different now. Yeah. Or like when you go out to the boonies and you see the the trailer sitting up on blocks and it's got a satellite three times the size of the trailer sitting next to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely not. That is not what is going on with satellites anymore. You know, they're pretty much handling everything we do. Um, a lot of our stuff is ground wired. You know, like your internet is going to be ground wired. Yeah. But because we use GPS tracking time systems, it probably won't be long before it crashes. And the same goes for things like, you know, power companies and nuclear nuclear reactor sites because they get their quote unquote timing signal where what it is essentially like everything has to be done on it. Have you ever like rebooted a really old computer and it's like it says it's like January 1900? Yeah. And the programs won't work because they think it's January 1900. Yeah. Yeah, so it's essentially that. So they get their timing signal from a GPS and then they know what time it is. So if that vanishes, they're not going to get a time update. So when the programs come to run, the programs aren't going to run because they don't know what actual time it is. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll probably kill cell phones, any form of banking, you know, 
things along those lines. Yeah, that all sounds terrible. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, it sucks pretty bad. I feel like somebody needs to be figuring out how to get up there and start like catching this shit. Like space scrappers? Yeah. Well, like it's like we need to send send like some satellites up in space with a big net and they just start yeah. catching shit. Yeah, I mean it would be hard. The, the, the space shit. filter. Yeah, I mean the shit's moving at 20,000 miles per hour, so it's tough, you know. Hey, just get some like radioactive spider web weave <laughs> net yeah. shit that'll catch all this crap. Or like that gel you shoot bullets into. Just build a gigantic wall of that stuff. Oh, ballistics gel. Yeah, ballistics gel. Yeah. That'd be cool. And you could watch it too. Just put it up on YouTube as a live stream. Yeah, you would need <laughs> like a 10 foot wide thing of bullet. Like a thousand foot tall, gel. 10 foot. Well, yeah, yeah. It'd yeah, be a ballistics gel. It'd be yeah. really heavy too. That shit's really heavy. Yeah. There's there's a lot of people out there talking about, you know, ways to recover space debris, but we have our own kind of version on earth of this whole space debris thing that's causing so much havoc and nobody's even touching that. And that's the whole Pacific plastic swirl, you know? Yeah. That giant like Island, the size of New Jersey or whatever that's out in the middle of the Pacific. Yeah. My buddy once sent me a video of a guy who like sailed into it with a sailboat and the guy went to bed for the night and woke up the next day and was still sailing through it. You know, that's how big it is. It's just this massive, thing of plastic. You know, when you see like pictures of, you know, Vietnam or the Philippines or something where there's this like rivers just with trash and plastic in it. It's that, but the size of New Jersey, which is insane, you know? Yeah. You know, 80, 100 miles across or something. Yeah. And we don't know what to do with that. Like nobody has come up with a solution because one, it costs too much money there. You know, if we, if we sat down and gave the smartest people on the planet, $20 $20 billion, they could fix that. That would be something they could fix. But first, it's in international waters. So everybody's like, not it, you know? And so nobody's even bothering with this thing because it costs too much money to fix. You know, there's a couple of startups that are like, hey, I made a boat that eats garbage. I've got one boat, cost me $2 million to make. Anybody want to pay for a second one? It's just a crickets, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that is a very real problem on earth. And that is also happening above us and we haven't even gotten like regular schmoes up into the atmosphere yet. Wait until, you know, average dudes are getting up into space. You mean Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos? Yeah. I mean, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos want to send, you know, thousands of satellites up in the next year, you know, and their satellites are going to be built stronger. So these things are just going to blow through other satellites if they run into them, you know, and People do, t- I mean, you know, we, we kind of are understressing a little bit how big space is. You know, satellites are the size of Volkswagen Beetle and space is space. The, the earth is huge. And so these things aren't hitting each other yet. Yeah, it's not like they're nearby. Right. You know, the next closest one is like on the other side of the right. country. Right, because there's like 5,000 up there, you know, spread throughout the whole planet. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I was sitting in my backyard the other week just like drinking some beers and like looking up at the dark. And in the hour or two that I was out there, I probably saw four satellites come across, go across. Were they in a straight line? Yeah. Yeah, that's Elon Musk's. That's his constellation thing. The Tesla constellation or whatever they call it. Interesting. Yeah, so those are his things, yeah. 
and well, they weren't all together. It was like I saw one. Yeah, yeah. They're spread and then pretty very far apart. similar, like lower in a degree. I saw a second one, and yeah. then further up, I saw a third one. And, yeah, yeah. But they were like 10, 15 minutes apart. They were coming. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, space is going to become very crowded because it's where everything is going. You know, people are putting more and more things up in orbit. Weapons are getting up there. You know, there's, we have a kind of a treaty about it, but not really, you know, space force, right? You know, so who, who knows? I, it's out of the three things we're going to talk about. This is the one I'm worried about the least but is something that is fairly likely. There are a lot of people at NASA now who are saying things like it's not if it's when, you know? So yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Illuminati. This has been our shortest episode uh, yet. So That's it. if you like the length, let us know and we can for sure. keep trying to, you know, make them a little bit more condensed for you guys. But otherwise, we will see you again next week for part two of the three-part infrastructure series where we're going to be talking about something else. Yeah, supply chain. Supply chain. For sure. That's what I went to school for. Really? Oh, yeah. You told me that. Yeah. Good. I want to hear what you think. All right. Next week, (laughs) supply chain. Dot, dot, dot. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Brew Luminati. Our intro and outro music is written by Dungeness. Want to learn more about the topics we cover and who we are? Join us on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Luminati Podcast for behind the scenes content and updates. Do you have mystical powers of insight or just questions, suggestions, and feedback? Reach out to us at thebrewluminati at gmail.com. Are you ready to immerse yourself into the inner circle? Visit patreon.com slash Podcast. For the same price as a cup of coffee or sandwich you won't remember, you know, because of mind control, you can join the Brewluminati and lift the veil on the true mysteries of the universe. Your membership to the Conclave unlocks access to our secret Discord server, bonus Patreon-only content, behind-the-scenes talks, and much more. Every dollar spent not only helps us reveal the truths of the world, but also frees us to make the show better, weirder, and allows us to go deeper and deeper into the void while funding our next beer run. When we're not talking conspiracies and beer, we're passionate about saving the forgotten puppies and kitties of the world. 10% of every dollar you donate goes directly to the Best Friend Pet Adoption Agency. They are a local 501c3 all-breed, all-foster cat and dog rescue that will save the life of a pet who never had a chance. Keep an eye out because we'll be posting pictures of the lives our listeners save. For more information on Best Friend Pet Adoption, head over to bfpa.org. Join us again next week for another episode of Brew Luminati. We know you will, because again, mind control is real.